Welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again flying the ship solo. As we continue on with January, uh, the month we're calling the Gatekeepers. And as promised, we're finally getting into our sports episode. Um, obviously, uh, this one's a little bit behind schedule, but uh, that happens when work and life get in the way. Uh, if anyone would like to pay me to do this full time, that would be fantastic. Then I this would come out on a, quite a, on a much more regular schedule uh, if that was the case. But uh, sometimes uh, other other things in life call that are a little bit more important, and the people who pay me uh, need me to actually do work for them. So that's why we're a little bit behind this week. No big deal. As I mentioned, this whole month is talking about things that uh, have a high barrier to entry. Maybe even some people that uh, are trying to actively keep you out. I know we've talked um, we've talked about specifically we've talked about the gym, um, and we talked about about uh, <clears throat> advancements in technology and artificial intelligence. And we've also mentioned, we've also thrown some other examples about like how, you know, actively and, and stuff like the entertainment realm, they're active gatekeepers, making sure that certain people don't, you know, making sure, I guess, the right people get into into those types of industries, making sure, you know, uh, trade unions and things like that have gatekeepers to make sure that certain people are in and out, make sure that there's an active in-group and make sure there's an active out-group. Um, the same thing happens, as we as we have seen, the same thing happens unintentionally or sometimes intentionally in things like artificial intelligence, advanced tech, uh, the same thing can happen in the gym. Like there are just there are certain people um, in certain instances that uh, do kind of keep people separate from uh, becoming a part of the in group. And sports is no different. There are a lot of things that sort of keep the casual fan, if you will, or the casual person away from understanding a lot about the sport or getting into a, a sport. And this is this goes for any particular sport, football. Football, baseball, basketball. Uh, we're going to cover for this today. We're going to cover football. Excuse me, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and soccer. We're going to cover five sports. Um, you know, we can't get too like niche. Um, once you start to get down to cricket and rugby and sports like that, th- th- those are certainly those sports have an extremely high barrier to entry. That is, it's very very difficult. Like I'm, a, I am a rugby fan, legitimately. It is difficult to watch rugby um, in, in in the United States, right? It's very very difficult. Uh, I, like I have a passing fascination with uh, Australian rules football. It is exceedingly difficult to watch Australian rules football in the United States. So like sports like that, we're we're kind of leaving by the wayside simply because um, the the barriers to entry are obvious, and that's really only one. It's just the availability of the sport. It's just very hard to find anywhere. Whereas. Um, Whereas the sports we're going to cover are readily available, but have their own um, have their own issues that keep people out. So let's jump right into that. Let's talk about what what each sport has, like their their main barrier. And this isn't um, this isn't going to be comprehensive. So I'm sure if we really wanted to, I could spend an hour talking about each one of these uh, and why they're they're a little bit difficult for um, casual viewers to sort of get involved in. But uh, <clears throat> We'll start with football, and this kind of encompasses both uh, college and pro football. Um, so I'm not gonna didn't didn't separate these. So you're not gonna make a difference. Not gonna make any differentiate differentiation between the the two levels of the sport. So so as far as football goes, I think the biggest thing that kind of keeps a lot of people out from really accessing the sport completely is that there is a very very high knowledge barrier about the plays, uh, about some of the rules. You know, it's. You know, maybe maybe a casual person can tell you what a play-action pass is, and that's obviously very helpful to enhance your enjoyment and understanding of the sport. But there are some there are some rules on formations and substitutions, right? 
like certain certain positions on the on the line have to be covered or uncovered. Um, certain players have to declare. You know, if you bring in an extra lineman, they have to declare themselves eligible. There's a there's a lot of rules like that that um, aren't as obvious. Um, that but aren't as obvious. But you'll you'll still see them get called or uh, get mentioned in the course of a game, and it's it's a little bit more difficult to keep up. Same with substitution rules in football. Um, you know, you, the way the the way you break a huddle has to be done a certain way as to not fool the defense. You have to let, or, you know, or the, the excuse me, the offense has to let uh, the defense also like make substitutions to match up. It's there, you know, there there are those kind of rules that are very, they're pretty much the definition of minutia in terms of football. But they do kind of come up pretty much at least once a game. Uh, but if you're not familiar with them, it can kind of seem like, well, what does it matter if you know, if someone's substituted in and out, in and out in this certain instance, what does it matter if um, there's 13 guys in the huddle versus 11? Um, you know, it, it's it matters. Like you know, there's it's about like deceiving, uh, you know, deceiving the offense or deceiving the defense. You know, depending on which who's doing what. Um, it matters. You know, then you have certain rules on punts and kickoffs. You know, like how how far a kick has to go for an onside kick, the fair catch rules, the the touchback rules, things like that. There's there are rules that sort of um, football is a game with a lot of rules, and if you don't know all of them, it can kind of seem like your what you're watching just doesn't necessarily make all the sense in the world, and it can be a lot to keep up with. I, I think so. I think um, that is sort of the main that's the main barrier for football because I think when you, if you just sit down and watch the game get played, it makes sense watching it, right? Like you're trying to move the ball forward through the defense into their end zone to score. There's nothing really complicated about that. So it really is more about the rules of the game that are, can kind of be a little bit confusing. As far as baseball goes, this is an obvious one, and it's something that Major League Baseball has tried to um, has tried to figure out and solve in the past like decade or so. And with baseball, and again, I'm including you know, Major or Minor League Baseball, it's all the same, right? Um, with baseball, it's the pace of play is an issue. Like this... The game can seem boring if you're not into the minutia of the sport. If you like, you're not really into the the pitcher versus uh, hitter battle. To understanding how like a really good hitter, um, you know, maybe a really great hitter makes an out on a play or strikes out uh, in his first at bat, whatever. Um, there, you can kind of actively see that they're like locking away that information, you know, from that picture that pitcher for the next at bat. Like there is a sort of pitch to pitch, at bat to at bat sort of strategy going on in baseball and to someone like me who's you know who played baseball and really enjoys the sport I understand that that sort of that sort of like small level like detail kind of stuff that a lot of people probably don't aren't that into um and so like just the sort of the overall slowness of baseball you know even though it's punctuated with moments periods of action um that really can kind of be the the big you know probably the biggest barrier to everyone um in terms of enjoying baseball but i think there are also other ones here too um the stars in baseball are fairly anonymous you know obviously like the big names are like you know you have you have aaron judge mike trout shohei otani there are obviously others than that but you know there's some big names in in major league baseball but even those big names are less popular than some i I, I want to say run-of-the-mill but Less popular than some regular NBA and NFL stars, right? Like Aaron Judge has had one of the greatest had one of the greatest seasons um, in in modern times in modern baseball, and he's probably still he's probably still on the same level as like a um, probably not even actually on the same level in terms of popularity as someone like Kyrie Irving, who 
has definitely made his own name recently in the NBA for various. Uh, uh, I, I won't. I'm not going to cast a lot of judgment here, but things that he probably shouldn't have said recently. And we don't need to dive into that. Um, I think we've we've uh, Chem and I actually on previous episodes have uh, talked about Kyrie's bizarre spiral since um, I'm going to call it a spiral because like he's been he's become a terrible player or something, but just sort of the bizarre path his life has taken off the court since he left the Cavaliers. Um, but someone like Aaron Judge really is again, you know, your AL MVP, your this larger than life kind of figure in baseball is sort of is definitely less popular than someone like Kyrie Irving. Uh, which is just an interesting sort of, it's just an interesting sort of uh, circumstance of baseball. They're just, the stars are just not as, you know, they're just not as well known. They're just not as big names. Um, and and I think also there's, you know, a lot of times there's like maybe some language barrier stuff with that. You have a lot of um, baseball stars that don't speak English, who don't spend their time in the United States. So I think that can be a little, that's part of it too as well, so. And I, another thing that kind of gives baseball a little bit of a knock, it's not the most TV-friendly sport um, in terms of sort of the way football is packaged very neatly. Uh, there's, you know, the way it kind of has this very particular ebb and flow. Uh, baseball does not. It, it, you know, you might have an inning that lasts forever and it makes it feel like this portion of the, you know, it makes it feel like you're kind of sitting and watching something for a very extended period of time. Uh, you You lose the depth on exactly how... Um, how fast the sport is actually moving. It makes TV makes it look slower and a little bit smaller than it actually is. Um, it's just a sport that is much better in person. So I think that's a huge. Um, that's another barrier that baseball has to over that a person has to overcome to to really get into baseball. And as far as basketball goes, I this is a little bit. Um, just kind of stay with me here on this one. I feel like the main barrier here is that. There's just not enough appreciation for how hard it is to play the sport at a high level. And I think it's because of how many, just currently in the NBA, how many freakishly good athletes are playing it. You'll hear people complain. And there there are some things about, uh, you can make an argument about the, the recent rule changes in the past like decade or so in the NBA. Most of them are to favor offense, right? Like, you know, you can't, the, you can't, I mean... There are times, like, if you sneeze at the wrong player, you can definitely get called for a foul or whatever. But um, it doesn't really take away from the fact that guys like Giannis and Kevin Durant didn't exist for most of the history of basketball. Um, there have always been tall, lanky, you know, quick guys. But, you know, 25 years ago, they would have they would have been playing Giannis as, like, a more traditional power forward. Um, you know, someone who's six foot eleven. They would have had him down in the blocks trying to play bully ball with like other like big slow men and like that's just not where, where he excels he excels out in the open court he excels slashing and driving like he's someone who's a little bit smaller same with Kevin Durant Kevin Durant in years past would have been um would have definitely been a post player not this perimeter sniper who can knock down the three take people off the dribble um and you know and, pl- and play defense in the wing like it's you know just guys like that just didn't exist the way that they exist now uh, Steph Curry has rewritten what it means to be a shooter, it just completely rewritten what it means to be a shooter. And not that, you know, not that the, the Ray Allens, the Reggie Millers, the Mark Prices, those guys, not that they couldn't keep up with necessarily couldn't keep up with this day and age with, you know, the three point shot. In fact, I would argue that they would be even better if they played in, uh, in today's, um, not necessarily better than Steph. I think their careers would look even better if they played in the more modern NBA. I, 
Ray Allen is the one who has the most, you know, the most recent career. But even if he played the bulk of his career in this current NBA iteration of the NBA, um, they'd all have like some bizarre numbers. But even so, Steph has rewritten what it means to be a shooter. It, it, it's we've, we've literally never seen anything like it before. Uh, LeBron, his durability and agelessness is basically unprecedented. Uh, even even when um, you know you think of stars like uh, Robert Parrish and obviously Kareem, who played a long, long time in the league, you know, twenty plus seasons, they didn't have the. LeBron still looks the same at age thirty eight as he did at age thirty um, in terms of his physical abilities, whereas Kareem Parrish and some of the other guys that put in had long careers really showed it at the back end that they just weren't they weren't as good they weren't the same they didn't play as long etc cetera, etc cetera. there just doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be any quit in in LeBron whatsoever so like these guys have these unprecedented careers they've rewritten what it means to play modern basketball and they just make it look so easy when it isn't so i think that people so i think that there's maybe like this perception amongst people who aren't really into basketball that like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, everyone scores 40 every night. And while certainly players are scoring at higher rates than they used to, it's not, <laughs> it's it's just not that easy to do what they're doing. We're just, ha- we just happen to be living in an era where we have some of the, we have a very, very large, a much larger collection of supreme talent than we've had in years past. As far as hockey goes, um, <clears throat> Hockey, the same in the same way that baseball has some anonymous, anonymous stars, hockey really has some anonymous stars. Um, you know, a lot of the best hockey players are, you know, they're from Canada, they play in Canada, uh, or they're from you know Russia or some other, you know Finland or some other place. You don't really hear a lot about them. Um, you know, they they just aren't well known. Uh, I think for fans, is think for fans as well, it, it's an expensive game to attend. Um, I know sports in general have gotten, you know, have gotten much more expensive to go to, but it is way cheaper to take your family to a baseball game than it is to take them to a hockey game. I mean, like, it's way more expensive to go to a hockey game. Uh, And this is something I'll get into a little bit later. There's also a lot of limited grassroots participation in hockey. Uh, You know, there's just, it doesn't have the same sort of um, top to bottom uh, participation, you know, from like young ages up to older, you know, up to, uh, not older people, but up to, um, you know, people in their teens and 20s aren't playing hockey the same way that they're playing soccer, baseball, football, basketball, uh, which, again, we'll get into. And it's another bad TV sport. It's it, it, Obviously, high-definition TVs have made it a little bit easier to follow, but I'm not going to lie. I have no idea how we watched hockey uh, prior to the high-definition television days. Um, just go back and watch, like, some hockey highlights from, like, the 90s, and good luck seeing where that damn puck is. Um, it's so much. It was it was so difficult to spot. So much so that uh, if you guys remember this, Fox when they carried hockey had that like glow up puck. Though it had like a sensor in it, and they had like a battery operated sensor in the puck that uh, it it sort of gave the um, the person doing handling the graphics on the TV side uh, like a signal to latch onto to put a graphic on. So like it so the puck glowed. Like a, it's kind of like a bluish color, if I remember correctly. So you could see the puck, where the puck was, because it was so damn hard to follow. And I can tell you right now, as a person who went to, um, who went to a college with a great hockey program and a great hockey culture, this is a sport that is way better in person. It is a much better in person sport for the same reasons, kind of the same reasons for baseball. Um, you you really get to see the speed and the depth and like how fast this sport is actually moving, and you lose a little bit, a little bit of that on TV. 
So hockey, definitely a much better in-person sport. Soccer's this is this is the obvious one here, right? With soccer, and I am just sort of grounding this in terms of the U.S., um, not necessarily anyone who might be listening abroad. Um, but and actually, really should say like U.S. and Canada. But anyway, it is really hard to watch the elite team plays play because none of them are playing in the United States. Um, with all due respect to Major League Soccer, it is very much a minor league compared to all of the other. Um, all of the other soccer leagues uh, around the world of note, be it um, you know the Premier League, be it um, I don't know what's the Italian, the Italian like Serie A or whatever, um, you know those um, the, you know the Spanish leagues, uh, like those those leagues are working at a level that is just it is far and away very different from what what MLS is here in the United States, mm-hmm. and. So much so that the you know even the best players that are on the U.S. national team, they don't play here in the United States. <laughs> like it's so if you know you might be real into um, oh gosh I, I I can't even remember the Christian Pulisic. You might be real into Christian Pulisic, but like good luck watching him because it, it, it's going to be difficult to find his games for his European club. Which actually I don't even know off the top of my head, so I, I apologize for that. Um, but another thing is that. I think this is a really tough barrier for people in the United States are real big into cheering for winners, right? Like that's, that's like a big thing here. Uh, And because the U S isn't, you know, the U S national team and our, the U S women's team is great at soccer, but the U S men's national team is not comparative to other, other countries. And because our system, we don't really have a, a coherent system the way the Dutch for example, have a, have a soccer system that begins identifying kids when they're like five or six years old for inclusion into their into their club system. Um, you know, we don't have that in the United States, so it's really hard to like. We don't have the same depth and and level of great players that other countries do, and because we're not as good, and because we're not as <clears throat> we're not as invested in it from a young age, we just don't. And because the U.S. likes the people in the U.S. like a winner, it's really hard to rally support. In stuff like you know the World Cup, for example, um, it's really hard to get the you you know the regular person in the U.S. into U.S. soccer when the U.S. is very much a double A team compared to the major league countries like France, Argentina, and Brazil. Like it is really difficult knowing it's really difficult knowing that you can't win, you know, like unless a lot of unless basically. A lot of things go exactly your way, and uh, you know, you you play. In order, and let's put it this way: in order for the U.S. to win a World Cup in the near future, every they have to play perfect games. Essentially, they just can't make any mistakes. Everything they have to do has to go right, and then other countries have to have everything go wrong. And this, and you know, the, certain countries have to sort of eliminate themselves before they even get to the U.S. It's just it's too much to overcome, and when you are sort of and this isn't just the sort of the U.S. attitude. I mean, you can take this any anywhere to any any kind of club team, any kind of major club team anywhere in the world. It's really hard to rally support for a team when they're just already counted out. I mean, right now, like the Oakland A's in baseball just had a fire sale um, in the last you know year and a half or so. Um, I'm sure their World Series odds are astronomical. No one is even some of the most diehard Oakland A's fans aren't going to be going to Oakland A's games. Because what's the point? They're going to lose 100-plus games. Um, and that's very much by design. So 
you know, when when your team is already sort of like, well, you know, maybe, you know, whatever the next World Cup, I guess 2026. Um, which actually, I think it's in North America. Um, while the U.S. certainly should be four years better, uh, but, the, you know, in the next World Cup, there's still going to be notches down from France, Argentina, um, those countries. And you kind of, it's it's a hard, it's a hard sell to go, boy, wouldn't it be great if they got out of, pool you know they got out of the the pool play if they got out of the uh whatever they call it uh you know their, their group play i guess wouldn't it be great if they got out of group play and maybe won one like that's sort of like that's sort of like the ceiling for u.s soccer at this point so it's really difficult to get people to like cheer on what essentially is sports mediocrity all right let's get into some stuff that might help you um help you understand the sport better maybe some of the little nuances of the sport and sort of like uh i guess you could call this like this whole like section a, a sort of trivia and a way to sort of um ingratiate yourself into the sport and maybe even like um you, you know kind of have a little bit of a little bit of information in your back pocket when you do go to watch one of these sports and um might surprise someone with uh, with your knowledge of them so you'll see what i mean here like we'll I'm going to I'm going to start with this I'm going to start with like sort of what makes each sport unique from the other, right? Like whenever people kind of just collectively throw yeah, you know, they use like the derogatory term sports ball, which I always kind of I find kind of funny. It just sort of people just kind of throw all the sports into the same hat when in when and it's usually people that just don't like sports, which whatever. Okay. Um that's fine if you don't. I don't know how you I don't know I'm one of those people, I just, I, I don't know how you don't like some sport. Unless you are, unless your whole life has been non-competitive for whatever reason, I don't know how you can't like a single sport, but that's just me. Anyway, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do first is go through each sport and um, go each sport one at a time, give you like what actually makes it unique and what, what about the rules or the, or the objects of play that sort of separate them um, from, from each other. And you'll see exactly what I mean here as I get into it. So we'll start with football. Um, and again, I'm, I'm sort of taking the, the collective college and pro football. There are different rules between them. Uh, but basically, it's the, the, the rules are pretty minute. So um, it, they're not, it's not like they're vastly different. Um, so football. Football is the only sport where you voluntarily give away the object in play, the ball, to the other team. Um, I, and I'm, I'm going to tell you exactly how this is different from baseball because you're probably thinking like, oh, well, you know, pitchers are, you know, throwing the ball to, uh, to batters in baseball, but this is different because you are not unlike baseball, which we'll get, we'll get to that. Every time the pitcher throws it, obviously, unless it gets hit or something, he gets it back in football. When you punt, you know, that's when you voluntarily give away the object, when you voluntarily give away the ball, you're punting it away on purpose. You're, it's the only sport in which you are saying to the other team, we're done trying, we're going to go ahead and, and give the ball away. And that has to do with the, um, you know, that has to do with the uh, the fact that you have four downs to gain 10 yards. Um, and, you know, and, and even though NFL coaches are much more aggressive and, and college coaches, for that matter, are much more aggressive in going for fourth down, going forward on fourth down than they've ever been, um, the punt still exists as a sort of means to minimize your ineffectiveness, basically. Um, you know, let's say let's say you've, it's first and 25. Um, you, you, you fail to get to the 35-yard line. Um, maybe it's fourth and two. It's just it's the, the risk of not getting it there um, is too high 
so you want to punt it away to the other team. If you give up possession, you know, you don't get that two yards on the last play um, at your own, in this case, it would be like your own 33-yard line, that's almost guaranteed points for the other team. It, it, you basically are saying, if basically in that situation, if you do not punt the ball away, it is almost a guaranteed three points that you'll be down by. So the punt always comes into play in those kind of situations where the risk of going forward on fourth down um, is way outweighs any reward that you might get from it. Um, conversely, on the other side of the field, when you do see, um, you know, it's fourth and, you know, again, say fourth and two, this time from the opponent's 35-yard line, it's kind of a long field goal. It's about 52 yards after, uh, after it all gets marked off. In that case, it might be worth going for it uh, on fourth and two, simply because you punt from there, you might only change field position. If it goes into the end zone, you might only change field position by a few yards. Um, it might be, literally might end up being like a 15-yard punt. Um, which it kind of isn't worth the, worth the effort. Um, so it and you know if you're only changing 15 yards, then you might as well go for it there. But don't want to get too I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. But basically, football the only sport you voluntarily give away the object and play to their to the other team. Um, football is also the only sport with theoretically impossible scores. So because of the way scoring is kept in the NFL, um, you know six points for a touchdown. Three points for a field goal, uh, two points for a safety, and one point for a extra point. And there's also such a thing as a one-point safety that has never happened in the NFL, but has happened recently in college football. I want to say like I want to say like eight or ten years ago in a bowl game, there was a one-point safety. Um, you'll have to look you have to look it up because like my explanation isn't going to satisfy you. But because there's only two ways to score one point. There are scores that you literally cannot get to in the NFL. For example, sorry, here, just looking up a, a chart just to make sure I had it straight. So, <clears throat> impossible scores are one to one. Like you can't you can't score one point in the NFL, so it's impossible. One to nothing is impossible. Two to one is impossible. Three to one is impossible. Four to one is impossible. Five to one is impossible. Seven to one is impossible. However, a possible score is six to one. Because the only way that you can get that one-point safety is on an extra point kick. So it is possible for a team to score a touchdown and then a team to get a one-point safety on, on the uh, the point after a touch. Which, um, again, has never happened in the NFL. It's happened a few times in college football. It's never happened in the NFL because more recently that rule got changed that you could score that way. Um, it's always been that way in college football, but it's just exceedingly rare. Um, but it did happen in, like, I want to say like the Fiesta Bowl from like 2013 or 2014. I'll have to look that up. I probably should have before I, I brought that up. But um, yeah, football, it, it just has theoretically, there are theoretically, not theoretically, there are impossible scores in the NFL. And there are some theoretical, theoretically impossible. Like six to one is almost guaranteed to never happen. Um, but it, I suppose it could. Um, whereas baseball, basketball, um, hockey, soccer, in theory, I suppose there could be a baseball game that, each team scores 200 runs. I'm not really, just not really sure what happened in that baseball game that that happened. Um, but again, like, but in, in more practical terms, an NFL game can never be one to one or one to nothing. A baseball game, how many baseball games happen and one to nothing? Probably a lot. Um, I'd have to look that up, but I bet there's probably a few hundred every year that end one to nothing or two to nothing or two to one uh, scores that just can't happen in the NFL. Um, or football in general. So yeah, football the only the only sport with these like impossible scores. Um, and it's so in fact it's 
it, the, because of the scoring system for American football, um, there's a website called Scoregami that tracks unique scores. And like there's a whole chart of all the scores that have been, you know, all the unique scores that have, have happened and all the ones that are impossible to happen. Um, so it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting sort of, um, sort of way to look at uh, sports data. Um, especially with football data, I would I would highly recommend checking out Scoregami or looking up impossible football scores. It's pretty interesting. Now, here's for a little trivia. Speaking of scoring, here's a little trivia. It's something you can pop out um, at a party or something in case uh, someone is testing your football fandom. Packers Hall of Famer Don Hudson, who is kind of like the original Jerry Rice, I suppose, but Packers Hall of Famer Don Hudson holds the record for most points scored in a quarter. How many points did he score? Give you a couple seconds here. Don Hudson, in one quarter, scored 29 points. And this is why this is kind of fun, especially because this is back in the this is back in the 60s. Um, I can't remember exactly. I might actually take that back. It might have been the late 50s. Um, but uh, against the Lions, Don Hudson scored four touchdowns and kicked five extra points. So <laughs> back in the days when... Uh, when those guys did everything. So Don Hudson, uh, you're talking now in the, the 70 years approximately since this happened. Again, I got to look up the date. Let's, let's call it 60 to 70 years, somewhere in between there, that this that uh, Don Hudson scored 29 points. No one has ever done this since. Um, and he always talks about, like, he probably would have scored more um, if, it, if it wasn't um, what, after they got up in the Lions, like, they just, uh, um, Lombardi just, not, yeah, Lombardi just sat basically everyone. So, um you know that uh, it, it Hudson probably could have scored there. I can't remember what the record for most points scored in a game by a single player, but I'm sure that had Don Hudson played a like full game, he probably would have. That record would probably still be his to this day. So Don Hudson, 29 points, four touchdowns, five extra points kicked in a football in a single quarter of a football game. Now, in baseball, this is this is where we're going to get to the difference uh, uh, between football and baseball here. The one that we talked about. Baseball is the only sport where the defense controls the objects in play. Like I said, you're sort of, in a way, the pitcher is sort of giving up the ball. You know, they're, they're throwing the baseball towards, um, you know, towards the batter, but they're not giving the ball away. The, the idea of the pitcher pitching is to get guys out. Um, and if, obviously, if you can miss bats completely, that's even better. But the object is never, at any point in time, the object is never the offense's ball. Right, like it is only after they. I suppose for a split second when they hit it, they're the ones in control of it. But the defense is the it's the only sport where the defense is fully in control of the ball at all times, basically. So, and this is where you can get into if you're like a cricket fan, you probably raising your arms and yelling at me right now. But I, again, I'm not. I just don't want to get into. I don't don't want to get into those niche sports. And cricket is especially fucking confusing. So um, that has that could be a whole freaking podcast on its own all the bizarre rules and, and timing rules and stuff in cricket. But baseball, the only sport where the defense is entirely control of the ball and play at all times. Um, this is also the only sport where players cannot be substituted multiple times. I know that there's there's a little bit of... Um, the, they, they've made some exceptions for that in like the All-Star game because of the time that uh, they ran out of players and the All-Star game ended in a tie in Milwaukee. Um but I, I know that there's a little bit of movement to have potentially have players, at least one or two players designated to, um, you know, come in 
you know, if they get they get subbed out for you know for defense or to be pinch hit for whatever, um, there is some movement to to maybe designate one or two people as like the guy that can come in or out, you know, maybe maybe more than one time. But it's the only sport where once you're once someone comes in for you, that's it. You can't you can't go back in, um, which I do find that very interesting. But um, but I guess it does you know it does sort of add to the strategy of baseball, right? Like if if you're going to take a pitcher out. Um, you know, maybe he's grooving or whatever. If you take that pitcher out, you obviously can't put him back in. Uh, there have been there have been some ways to sort of get around this that uh, some managers have found. Uh, and one of the more creative uh, managers, um, Joe Madden, he of the uh, of the of the first resurgence of Tampa Bay Rays baseball um, in the late in the late two thousands, um, and then uh, when they went to the World Series in two thousand eight, and then obviously. Um, managing the Cubs to a World Series win uh, in 2016, he's always done some creative stuff. And one of the ways he can kind of get around this, and he's done this multiple times, he's taken out a pitcher, you know, be it a starter or reliever or whatever. He's taken out a pitcher, but didn't didn't take the pitcher out exactly. He would sub in a pitcher to, um, essentially, he would take the, let's just say, like it was a starting pitcher, sixth inning, I'll, I'll get, I'll, I don't know the exact circumstance of this, I just remember him doing this a couple times with the Cubs. Let's just say it was starting pitcher, sixth inning. Guy's kind of a left-handed pitcher, but he's got a string of righties coming up. Uh, Madden wants the matchup. So he brings – normally you would just bring in your right-handed pitcher and just call it a day for your for your lefty. But what Joe Madden did was substitute – change his pitcher's position, um, put him out in left field, which you can do if you, if you so choose, um, brought the left fielder in, quote-unquote, as a pitcher – and then subbed a pitcher for that position player. So he had a pitcher, a starting pitcher, out in left field for an inning and then was able to then change positions back to put his left-handed pitcher back in, the starting pitcher, if you will, in this in this example, back in um, without having to, you know, with, you know, with he basically got his, got his, uh, his pitcher, his matchups he wanted in without completely taking his pitcher out. I know he's done the same thing. He sent a pitcher over to... To first base for a couple of batters to do the same thing to have to have a favorable matchup later in a game without sort of completely removing the pitcher and that's sort of one way around it. I think um, we have like the Shohei Otani rules now, uh, where you know he can essentially just to make sure that he plays as many games as possible, he can be subbed. Um, a pitcher can be subbed out to DH now if if uh, if the manager so chooses. And I have a feeling we'll see a little bit more of that as. As we have more and more, there. Are, as we have more two-way players, um, obviously Otani is a fucking unicorn of a two-way player. But there are other relief pitchers and, and pitchers who are pretty good hitters, and I, I have a feeling we'll see a little bit more of that. Some of these guys going to DH for you know at least like a, a couple of, of bats after they're pitching or something like that. But um, who knows? But yeah, the, so the the. The idea that you can only be, you know, you can't be substituted multiple times, you can't bring players in and off the field, definitely creates some of those odd situations, like with Joe Madden, um, and it does, it does inherently increase the strategy, right? Like if you if you take out your, maybe you have a, a, a really good hitting left fielder, but he's a terrible outfielder, and you want um, you want better defense in a close extra inning game, but you know maybe you. You know, like, do you want to? You have to weigh it. Do you want to give up his bat in exchange for someone with a good glove? So it does create some interesting sort of strategy um, questions as as games go on. 
All right, here's a little bit of trivia for you. Um, <clears throat> in August of 2018, Braves pitching prospect Hayden Deal completed a feat so rare, it's believed to be the only instance of it happening in the history of professional baseball. What did Hayden Deal do? If anybody knows this off the top of their heads, I'll be very shocked. Um, so Hayden Deal in August of 2018, I think he was in single A for the Braves. I want to say that's like Mississippi, uh, but it could be wrong. Um, Hayden Deal threw a two-pitch, three-out inning. Um, this is only possible because at the time, the extra innings rule where we have the um, we have the ghost runner or the extra runner or whatever you want to call it uh, that starts on second now, that actually started in the minor leagues. So... This so at this point in time, this was the, the 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 ghost runner was only in the minor leagues, and I actually think 2018 was the first year for it. So this was the the first chance that we had to have this. Hayden Deal got a, got a pop up, or maybe it was a ground out. I can't remember what on one pitch, and then on on the next pitch that he threw, uh, he got a line drive double play out. Um, you know, they doubled off the runner at second base, who I believe is someone I've mentioned on this podcast before. I think it was the runner, maybe it was the hitter, um, O'Neill uh, O'Neil Cruz. But um, the there have obviously been other innings. Obviously, other pitchers have come in and gotten two outs with one pitch or, you know, three outs with two pitches. That's happened before. But in terms of that, in terms of that inning, that there were more pitches thrown than that. It was just that that pitcher came in and only threw one pitch or threw two pitches or whatever. Or there's even been, um, I think last year, um, I think last year was the first time in a couple years it happened. Or maybe it was the year before. Can't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, every now and then you'll have a pitcher come in and throw no pitches and end an inning. Um, you know, you'll have a pitcher come in and like pick off somebody or something. Or, um, you know, someone, something along those lines. Or a pitcher comes in, throws no pitches because they balk and that balks in a run and that's that's the end of the game. Like that's happened before. But in terms of a pitcher coming in, starting an inning, um, there, as far as we know, there there are no other two pitch, three out innings, and the only way it could have happened at this point in time, and now now that the major leagues has has adopted this, it could happen in major league baseball. But the only way it could have happened is with that extra runner on second base starting the extra innings off. So there you go, 2018 Hayden Deal, um, the only one in in any kind of pro pro baseball record books to have accomplished this particular feat. All right, how about a little basketball here? So basketball, it's the only sport with instant possession changes that doesn't have an offsides rule, right? So like in, in hockey and soccer that also have um, instant possession changes, and football for that matter, there are offsides rules um, about like where someone can start or where players can finish. Uh, in hockey and, and soccer, um, you can't go, you can't be beyond the defenders, right? Like when um, when the puck or the ball is, advanced on an instant change of possession you can't fling it down uh down ice or down the pitch um if if your if your player is too far ahead um and and hockey additionally has like an icing rule that like keeps that keeps um it's it's designed to keep um players from just from the from the players from just like flicking the the puck all over the place and just sort of kind of turning it almost into like a punt equivalent in the nfl and just causing a dog pile at either end um but basketball if you steal a pass um doesn't matter someone can run right past everyone else you could throw it down court to them and that's totally fine it's the only sport with no offsides rule in terms of its possession changes um it's also the only sport 
where you throw the object of the object in play directly into the goal. Um, obviously, you can kick the ball in soccer into a goal. Um, you can you can hit the in hockey you can hit the ball or hit the puck directly into the goal. But like basketball is the only sport in which you throw it directly in. Um, you don't throw the baseball over the fence. You can throw the football into the end zone, but someone has to be there to catch it. You can't just throw it in hit like have it hit the hit the paint and then call it a touchdown. So the only way to you know so like in terms of scoring all your points, basketball is the only one where you just take aim and throw it right in. Um, you know, not to again, I, there are people out there like, well, what about water polo? Who the fuck cares? It's water polo. Um, yeah, so the object. So in, again, in basketball, you throw the object directly into the goal. In fact, in soccer. Um, it's illegal to throw the ball directly in the goal. If you, if you were to throw the ball in on a, on a side out, um, and you, and you had a throw in you, if you threw that ball directly into the goal, it does not count. It's, it's uh, automatic, you know, it's, I don't know if it's a, if there's any kind of particular penalty associated with it. I think it just turns into a goal kick. Um, so you can't even do that in, in soccer, even though there is a, an option that lets you, uh, you know, use your hands. Um, you still can't do that. So basketball, the only sport where the object in play is directly thrown into the goal. Now, here's a little basketball trivia for you. Larry Bird made his Celtics debut on October 12th, 1979, in a game where this happened for the first time. All right, did you write your answers down? In this game, October 12th, 1979, the first three-pointer in NBA history, was made by Celtics' Chris Ford. Chris Ford, who I think died very recently, like within the last couple of weeks. He'd been in his uh, early 70s, I believe. Um, but Chris Ford made the first three-pointer in NBA history. Obviously, the three-pointer existed in the ABA, which is kind of what it became known for, but it wasn't until 1979 that the NBA adopted the three-point line, and Chris Ford of the Celtics was the first one to make a three-pointer. And I would be willing to bet that if you were to take... Um, Chris Ford, even Larry Bird's career three-point numbers. I bet um, that I bet the amount of three-pointers that some of these players shoot in a season now would encompass almost their entire career numbers. I, I would, or get at least a good way to it. I, I would, I would make a guess. Um, so I have to have to have to check on that. Um, that's, that's something to look further into. But uh, first three-pointer made in 1979 by Chris Ford. Now in hockey, hockey is the only sport. That doesn't stop for player changes. Whenever you shift, whenever you substitute someone else, someone in, um, you know, in, in, sh- in, in hockey, it's like a line shift. You'll have, you know, three, four players coming out at once, um, sometimes more than that. Um, sometimes they'll pull the goalie if, um, you know, they want to get an extra shooter on the ice, you know, if a, if a team's down or whatever. All that happens in live action. Um, it's the only sport that doesn't stop for this. So um, <clears throat> while, the, you know, like while in the NFL, you kind of have, we have very quick substitutions. They don't happen, obviously, during play. They happen in between plays when play is stopped. Um, you know, the, the game clock is still ticking. The, 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 you know, the overall game clock and the, the, the play clock are still going, but play has stopped. Basketball, obviously, the play has to stop completely to get people on. Um, baseball, you know, baseball, obviously, we've covered its kind of odd substitution rules. But baseball, you still have to stop. You have to come up, and even though the, there's no like real, it's not like someone like the 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 play stops midway. But someone has to go get the attention of the umpire, make changes on the scorecard, tell him who's coming in and out. Soccer, you have to wait for even though the game is quote unquote still going on, 
you have to wait for a break in the action to get people um, to substitute people in and out. So hockey, the only one that doesn't that doesn't uh, stop. You just kind of shoot. You kind of move the puck down to the other end, get your guys in, and just keep going. Um, hockey is also the only a sport only sport that allows the object in play to be contested all the time. So here's what I mean by that. In the NBA, you go down and score a basket. Uh, you go down and score a basket. You let it go, right? Like you you have to give the ball to the other team so they can throw it in. At that point, you can come try to get it. Uh, or you can try to block it from being thrown in. But it's their, it's their ball to try to throw in. It's in football, you go down and score a touchdown or a field goal or whatever. You have to kick the ball off to the other team um, in order to... Uh, you know, in order to continue play, obviously you can try an onside kick or something like that, but you still have to make. You know, there's that's that's rare. Um, obviously, onside kicks don't happen that often, and they're not recovered that often. Generally speaking, the general rule is that um, you are you are at least you are lining up um, to give the ball away, basically. But uh, same with soccer, you score a goal, you restart from the other side, the other team gets the ball, they start off. Um, in hockey, you score a goal. Guess what? It comes back to center ice for a faceoff. Anyone can get it again. Um, play stops for you know penalty or some other reason. Um, guess what? We have a faceoff. You can go get it again. The puck is always contested. Um, it's the only sport like that where after after goal scoring, after stoppages, whatever, anyone can go get it. Whereas in even in uh, even in even in rugby, the one team kind of controls the ball after a stoppage. Um, after a play gets you know gets stopped, you can go for it or whatever. But like one one team is still controlling it, whereas there is no control of it until someone has it. Um, so it's kind of an interesting little um, you know little um, aspect of, of hockey there. Like you could, in theory, you could you could just continuously score goals in theory um, and just continuously take the puck back uh, from you know from the other team. It doesn't really happen that way, but it is again the only sport that allows the object in play to be contested at all all the time. All right, so here's a little, little your little hockey trivia to, to pop out at a party. On December 19th, 1917, Dave Ritchie of the Montreal Wanderers did what to put himself in the NHL record books? All right, you have your answer. By about a half hour, he scored the first goal in NHL history. Um, there, there wasn't quite an NHL at that, you know, prior to 1917. There were loose confederations of Canadian and, and some American hockey teams, but um, the, you know the birthplace of the NHL is uh, up there in Montreal, and um, the first what would become you know the first organized game under the national although it wasn't I don't think it was called the National Hockey League at that point, but what would become the National Hockey League banner uh, was scored by Dave Ritchie, and it wasn't until recently that they kind of figured that this was the first goal scored because there were two games that night being played in Montreal. I can't remember what the other game was, uh, who it was between, but there are two games that night being played under the, under the eventual NHL um, organizational banner. Um, and they couldn't figure out like which, and again, until like, I want to say like five or six years ago, they didn't know which game had actually started first, but it was the Montreal Wanderers, I think playing the Toronto arenas or something like that. Um, Dave Ritchie scored the first goal in NHL history and he beat, I forgot who he beat, but he beat him by about a half hour. Because that game started about, I think the game started like a full hour ahead of the other game, so uh, it was it was kind of you kind of like for a long time they just kind of had options like over like oh it was either Dave Ritchie or this other guy, 
But more recently, they found uh, some, I, th- I think it was like an advertisement in an old Montreal newspaper, or maybe it was an old Toronto newspaper for the game. And it had the start time of this particular game about an hour ahead of the other game. So the, the goal would have been scored about a half hour before uh, the other goal got scored. So there you go. There's your hockey trivia. All right. How about some, uh, we'll wrap this up with some soccer. This, this portion here, we'll, we'll talk about soccer, wrap it up. Soccer, the only sport where the game changes to settle long games. Um, we could talk about the bizarre timing rules anyway, where it's just kind of anyone's guess as to when the game is actually going to end. Um, but you get extra time and then you'll get uh, an overtime period um, that, that is played played out normally. And then w- once if we go beyond that, then we've decided that we're just going to start, we're going to change the game and we're going to just begin kicking penalty kicks. Um, and while obviously the penalty kick is part of the game, could you imagine if after two overtimes, NBA games said, all right, get your best three-point shooters out here. We're going to have a three-point contest to determine who wins this game. Or we're going to have a dunk contest to determine who wins the free throw shoot, whatever it is. Um, that would be really strange. But soccer just decided that instead of continuing to play, which I, to some degree I understand, um, they're just going to go ahead and settle it with, with penalty kicks, which is kind of antithetical to everything else that happens in in the course of a uh, in the course of a soccer game. And even even the penalty kick, um, even the overtime penalty kicks, kind of change too. Like so. On a regular penalty kick, you can, if you want to, it's it's a little bit risky because um, if you, it's a little bit risky, and I'll explain why here. But you can pass the ball off to someone on a regular penalty kick in the course of a game. Um, so it, I, I want to say Messi did it very recently, like in the last like a couple of years. There's like a pretty famous video of him, um, of him doing kind of doing a full charge and then just like a little quick side sweep out to to someone else. Uh, to uh, to fool the goalie, basically, kind of like a kind of like a play action pass in football. You get you get the goalie going one way, and the ball's actually going another direction. Um, but that obviously is risky because if you kick the ball, if you pass the ball into the direction that the goalie's making his first move towards, then you're probably going to set your, the, this other goal scorer for failure. Um, so it's a little bit risky, but you can't even do that in an overtime penalty kick. Um, you just it, it's just one on one mano a mano. So even even the nature of the penalty kick changes. Um, from what it would have been, from how it would have, how you could play it in, during during regular time. So this is the only sport where we we basically say, hey, we're going to be doing something different now um, to to settle this. I mean, again, like baseball doesn't end with a home run derby or um, you know I don't know a bunting contest or something. They just keep playing baseball, even though there's some tweaks that they've made recently. Um, Soccer, also the only sport that allows a different method of handling the object in play. So obviously you kick the ball in soccer, and obviously the goalie is the one of the you know the exception who can who can uh, pick up or kick the ball. But a regular player on a on a throw in can pick the ball up and throw it in. Uh, it's you know think about this in basketball when they when you throw the ball in um, when you when you're getting the ball in from the side out or whatever. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden uh, the guy. Guy, the guy putting it in play doesn't like kick it in. Um, same with like football. Like it's, it's, you know, suddenly the, if you, if the quarterback suddenly kicked the ball, that's now a punt. Um, so the, the rules become very, very different. If someone who is not the kicker or the punter, if they kick the ball, um, the rules suddenly change. But in, in soccer, you are, for whatever reason, if the ball goes out, you're allowed to throw it in. And I think there's been some, I, I think originally the idea was, 
that it might be quicker um and you know you, you could it might give you an advantage some kind of advantage to the the team who is controlling the ball or whatever but I, I I know that there's been some movement recently about why don't we just kick the ball and it'd be quicker um and obviously would be much more in line with everything else that's happening in soccer because 99 percent of the time the ball is being kicked in play um so or kicked around in play so it is kind of weird that you know suddenly you just you're allowed to pick the ball up and throw it so soccer the only one that does that and how about a, a little a little soccer trivia a little world cup trivia for you so the first world cup shutout aka clean sheet is credited to which goalkeeper And despite me crapping all over the United States uh, men's national team, this goes to Jimmy Douglas of Team USA in the very first World Cup, which I want to say was in Paraguay, I believe, in like 1930. Very first World Cup, also had our very first World Cup shutout um, in pool play, like the first round. It also had our first, um, also the first goal was scored by uh, someone on the French national team. So you had, uh, so you had the U.S., um, despite the fact that they have never been particularly great at soccer, our goal, our, our boy, Jimmy Douglas of the USA, has the first clean sheet in World Cup history. So there you go, a little bit of trivia for you. All right, I was going to do a little bit more of an extended piece on gambling, but I, I don't really think I need to get too far down that road. Because, um, you know, now that gambling is at least, uh, <clears throat> it's new here in Ohio, and who knows where you're listening from, might have been, might have been legal, sports gambling might have been legal for quite a while where you are. But it's, you know, just at the first of the year, it's legal here now where I am in Ohio. And it um, I'm not advocating for gambling, but if FanDuel or DraftKings would like to sponsor this, that'd be great. And then I will advocate for it. Um, but I'm not advocating for gambling. Um, what I am going to sort of talk about is how, even though there's some like complicated terms around gambling, if you're not a degenerate gambler like me, um, you know, money line spread, over unders, whatever. You can you can look all that up. It's it's actually very straightforward. Um, there's so there's some jargon around it that might um, that might be a little confusing. But I will say when you when you do have <laughs> when you do have a little bit of skin in the game, even if it's like five or ten bucks, which is generally spe- I'm not really that big of a gambling person, truth be told. But it is kind of fun uh, to you know. Uh, you know, to spend to take a couple free bets, maybe from uh, you know promotional free bets from the uh, from the online uh, gambling retailers. Um, you know, put a little bit of your own money in. Maybe on a weekend, go thirty, forty bucks on some football games or some basketball games or whatever, um, and you know, see if see if it's going to pay out for you. And I actually think that it's gambling is actually not a bad way to sort of absorb a little bit more information about whatever sport it is that you're that you're watching, be it football or basketball or whatever. Um, you know, you when you have like even if it's like ten bucks attached to it, um, the promise of like hitting a parlay that might pay out like two hundred and fifty bucks on that ten bucks, um, or you know, or whatever it is, will definitely have you paying more attention to the game itself. So if you even if you take up some of the free bets, um, you know that uh, that uh, FanDuel or DraftKings or, or whatever they're offering, even take up their promo bets, even if it's essentially like a free ten dollar credit. Um, you will be surprised at how much more pen- attention you're paying to a game when the p- the potential payout for you is significant. Um, even if it's not that significant, you will definitely be paying more attention, hoping for hoping for that parlay to hit, hoping for the under, hoping for whoever the first touchdown scorer is, whatever whatever it is that you're betting on. 
you'd be shocked at how much more attention you're paying. And simply just by paying attention to it, you will glean some information about whatever sport it is. If you're not super familiar with football, you will glean information from football if you have five bucks riding on, um, you know, riding on the over. If you have 10 bucks riding on, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, some parlay that has, uh, you know, players you've heard of scoring touchdowns or, you know, hitting certain passing yard thresholds, whatever it is, you'd be very surprised at how much information about the sport you'll, you'll glean just from sitting there watching it, waiting for whatever you're waiting for to happen. So I think, um, again, I'm not telling you to go out and gamble or whatever, but I think that is sort of an avenue for people who might not might not be super duper interested in sports. Um, might be a way to spice it up and get you a little bit interested in sports. Um, obviously, if you have a problem with gambling, you should probably call one of those hotline numbers. Um, probably if you have any kind of uh, addictive behaviors at all, it might not be the best idea. But certainly uh, there are some avenues for you to get a little bit more enjoyment out of football simply other than just simply watching for the, you know, the wins and losses and, um, you know, cheering for your team. Uh, gambling might be a way that you can sort of in, it, uh, put a little uh, excitement into things for you. Uh, trust me, nothing like, nothing like potentially losing some money uh, to, make, uh, to make your weekend uh, perk up just a little bit. All right, so the last thing I want to get into um, about, uh, get into here in terms of what might be keeping people from getting into any particular sport are the fan bases themselves. Uh, I think every, any, I shouldn't say every, but any particular sport, any particular team can have a fan base that is a little bit on the toxic side of things. Uh, I don't think it's, it, I think for the most part, I think for the most part, uh, fans of sports are pretty good at behaving themselves, but we do... <laughs> Obviously, there's um, there are notable instances where this is not true, but I think and I think that the, each sport in its own way has certain toxic elements and certain certain gatekeepers that want to make that for whatever reason want to make it difficult on people uh, getting into the sport. Uh, or I shouldn't say make it dif- difficult on new people into the sport, but make it difficult to enjoy the sport and make it difficult for people who are getting into it kind of to just enjoy enjoy things on their own terms is how I'll put that. So let's, per usual here, we'll start with football. This is, I think, at least in, in our country, um, in, in the United States, football is has the most um, obvious sort of toxic elements and toxic streak to it, right? Like you have some very vitriolic fan bases. There's a lot of blatant obnoxious obnoxiousness. I mean, all the... For the most part, most of the drunken fight videos in in the stands at sporting events, most of them are happening at football games, um, just because of the, um, you know, the sort of the the build up, the build up that uh, the fans get. You know, they get a whole whole day to get to get good and liquored up. Um, the there are a lot of sort of intense rivalries in in the sport um, that kind of ramps it up. So it, it and it, so like there's just this sort of um, there's just this sort of uh, toxic brew kind of like always simmering. And, you know, it really is the sport with a lot of the most dislikable fans. Um, there are just like, it's one of the few sports with like celebrity fans where like you think like the, the Ohio State Buckeyes have like some notable celebrity fans and apparently they're fucking jerk offs. Um, you know, there's the, uh, the noted like New York sports fans or the Philly sports fans who are just, like, the, the fan bases are just very intense and very dislikable because of how they behave. 
Um, it, it, so the NFL football, but the NFL in particular here. Well, you know what? Let's extend that to college football. How there are the the idea of like rival schools. Uh, you know, Ohio State, Michigan. <clears throat> Excuse me, Ohio State, Michigan, Auburn, Alabama. Um, you know, South Carolina and, uh, excuse me, South Carolina and, um, oh, who the, god damn it, uh, Clemson, excuse me. Um, there are just like some of these like rivalries like that where, um, it, it's, the hatred is probably a little bit unwarranted, right? Like it's, it's probably just like a little bit too much and it gets taken too far. Um, and that's why you get like fights in the stands and, and dumb shit like that. But I, I so I, I really like football. Really has the has the lion's share of like the of the bad fan bases and the things that can make it unenjoyable uh, for people. I, I can't tell you how many times when I was a kid going to Browns games, how many drunken people were just being complete assholes to to me to other to other people. To I distinctly remember um, going to a Brown Steelers game and we were sitting by by the old dog pound at the old stadium, the old dog pound. Um, is insanity was insanity. Um, that's the new dog pound. Great, whatever. Um, I guess it's kind of interesting, but the old dog pound was just absolute insanity. And I distinctly recall during this during this Brown Steelers game, there's a kid walking by. He's maybe like ten or eleven, uh, walking by with a um, he's wearing he got a Steelers hat on and like a Steelers winter coat kind of deal. It was cold, it was like in November, so it was colder. And drunk guy has a full nearly full um cup of beer and as the kid walks by he takes it and whips it at this kid and hits him directly in the chest with it and like i'm sure that that kid that who's now probably like 40 um i'm sure that that guy remembered that his entire life and like that's the kind of dumb shit that that football fans do um in the united states and for just like for another example here how fans how fans online treat the women who are associated with football, um, you know, be it the sports, you know, be it the reporters, the sideline reporters, um, you know, the, the the TV hosts or whatever that are you know involved with like the NFL pregame stuff. Um, football fans are terrible at treat these women terrible. Um, I just like very specifically think of I always remember this one interaction that someone had with uh, Aditi Kinkabala who's covers um she works for cbs covers has always covered the um our region like you know covered the afc north and covered cleveland pittsburgh baltimore um and a woman is very very well respected um by her colleagues well respect excuse me well respected by nfl personnel that she interviews and talks to douchebags pop up in her twitter i just remember this one in particular where someone was especially vitriolic to her on her twitter account um, basically, you know, berating her, telling her to get back in the kitchen. She doesn't know what she's talking about because she never played football. Blah, blah, blah. That kind of shit happens to not just her, to all women reporters in sports, but especially these women covering football. They get it a lot. And it's just like, one, these people, these women are working in the sport every single day and you're not. So I'm sure they know more than you do about the goings-on of the teams. Uh, two, I love when I love when I hear this like, oh, she never played football. Hey, fat ass sitting at home on his fucking phone watching the football game. You probably never played football either. Not Certainly not at a, at a high level, I should say. Just because you played fucking peewee, played in middle school, and rode the pine in high school doesn't give you any any qualification to talk about this stuff because you also did not play NFL football. 
Uh, baseball has a very different sort of dynamic with its fan base in that it's it's very internal and it can kind of it's sort of like it's internal and like you you see like the the arguments mostly happening online um and it can kind of if you're sort of new to the game it can kind of be like well what the fuck are these people talking about why what what is the deal with statistics and that's really where like the issues lie and the idea the idea that um you got the old heads, um, you know, the old baseball heads who are about, who are more about like the the feel of the game and the you know, the idea of how how the way things used to be and the new school analytical people, right? Like, and and like their their the stats and um, how an analytical approach has changed the game, and you know the old heads really badly don't want the sport to change, um, and they really openly resent new aspects to the game, and it creates a rift. Certainly between um, the two schools of thought, but also like keeping in mind that young people, which is always any sport, always wants um, more and more young people watching it, participating in it and whatever. Um, and when you have these old heads just poo-pooing like, oh, what does war even mean? OPS is an overrated stat, blah, blah, blah. This, this, the, uh, the, the swing angle, everyone's trying to do this. I remember back in my day when everyone bunted like that kind of that kind of like bs um sort of denial of change is something that like is going to push away more and more young people from this particular sport when it's being when there's such a very vocal group of gatekeepers telling telling you uh, so maybe someone who is interested in sort of understanding how the game gets played basically telling you to like ah oh, no it's this is not the way that it shouldn't be this way it was better this way it was better when this happened it was be- it's it just sort of creates this wall where it's like, okay, like, well, I don't, I, you know, maybe I do kind of like, maybe I do like a few more home runs. Maybe I do like um, velocity or whatever. And, you know, maybe, maybe I, I do under, you know, especially people who have, um, you know, have had a longer relationship or, or maybe the only relationship with, uh, with the analytic side of the game if they're younger. Um, it just kind of push you, it just kind of push those people away when you are that resistance to change. So I think, as far as the fan bases go for baseball, it, it, it's a little bit more internal, um, and I think it's it's part of the reason why the audience for baseball isn't getting younger as fast as the as the audience for football or basketball or some of the other sports, um, which is definitely not a good thing. If you're uh, in the off, if you're in the major league baseball offices in Manhattan, uh, you would definitely like your audience to be getting a little bit younger. As far as basketball goes, I think this is probably one of the most open fan bases um, where there's not really a lot of gatekeeping happening necessarily, especially in terms of teams. And I think that's because there just aren't that many blood rivalries like in college football or even pro football. Um, You know, we don't have – basketball has a few. You know, you have Celtics, Celtics, Lakers, but like there isn't – there isn't like a Yankees, Red Sox. Um, kind of deal. There isn't a, a Bay Area, um, you know, like we had the Bay Area World Series like 30 plus years ago. Um, there isn't like sort of, we just don't have that in basketball really. Um, and obviously international soccer is a whole other thing. And so I think the kind of the lack of like real hardcore rivals kind of keeps the fan bases from being terrible at each other's throats. Um, but I, But I do think because this is a player first league, where like, um, and what I mean by what I mean by that player first is that 
there are people that are LeBron fans, not necessarily Lakers fans. They'll, they'll, they were fans of his, of his when he was in Cleveland. They're fans of his when he was in Miami. They're fans of his in Los Angeles. They're LeBron fans. Um, same with, uh, you know, Durant fans or, um, you know, uh, Dame, uh, Damian Lillard fans. Like, there are fans of Damian Lillard who aren't necessarily Portland Blazers fans. It's it's this weird, not this weird thing. It's just, I suppose, like, every every sport has a little bit of that. But basketball has a lot of it, and it's definitely because the league promotes stars over teams. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you know, years ago it would have been, you know, you're a Cavs fan, you're a Bulls fan, you're a... Um, uh, you're a jazz fan or whatever but now you know even if you're a pelicans fan you're probably a zion fan is really what what you are you're probably a um um if you're into the orlando magic you're probably a paulo Mancaro fan uh, or something like that versus an actual orlando magic fan so it's there's this interesting dynamic there and i think that's where some of the some of the toxic streak kind of comes in because it because it's player first we begin arguing over the greatness of players to such a fucking degree it is it is absolutely mind-numbing and maddening um the jordan the jordan lebron debate which i will not go into in too much depth is probably the most notable one and it's like if you see the online discourse over jordan versus lebron you would think that like you would think that if whatever side you pick you would think that the other side is convinced that you are a war criminal um, there are literally Skip Bayless's identity at this point is just hating LeBron. And it's, it, but this goes with all players, right? Like this is, this is something that uh, you, you have people talking, you know, Durant versus Durant versus LeBron, um, Giannis versus, uh, Nikola Jokic. Like it's this very, it's this very weird, it's this very weird ongoing sort of con- ongoing debate about players that really doesn't get anywhere and I don't really understand like what how one I don't understand how you could even win it and two I don't understand like what good it does I I get like you know stumping for the guy that you like for the player that you like I don't understand like what it does to be an asshole about it which is sort of like why I which is why I the Jordan LeBron debate is just one of those ones where I just can't like I just have to throw my hands up because I don't understand like why people get so fucking heated about perhaps the two greatest basketball players of all time. I, I, I don't understand. Now, hockey, I think this is more, this is definitely going on very personal perception of what hockey fan bases are like since, in, you know, other than like a, there's a minor league hockey team here in Cleveland, but um, don't have a ton of pro hockey experience, and I've you know watched plenty of college hockey, but like like but so this is a very personal perception that I don't think of hockey fans as being hostile necessarily, but I do think of hockey fandom as being a little as being a little bit more tribal um, than other sports, and I, I mean tribal in that like. So hockey of the four major sports has like the smallest uh, fandom footprint, if you will, in the United States. Obviously, it's very big in Canada, but because it has such a small, a much smaller fandom, um, there's a there's a more sense of belonging to a more unique in group when you're a fan of when you're a real fan of hockey, 
or or participant for that matter in hockey. It's such a niche sport. And it's very hard to it has such a high barrier to entry. This is what I talked about before. You know, the lack of sort of grassroots participation in hockey. It's really hard to get into it. Like it's in terms of the the cost, the equipment you need, the conditions you need in order to play hockey. Right? Like, um, you know, like if you grew up in Florida or Texas, the only way that you're going to play hockey is to play um, roller hockey. Um, obviously, obviously, I shouldn't say the only way, but like that might be your first sort of into it before it gets really, really organized. Otherwise, you have to play in some kind of organized youth league or school league or something along those lines. Like it's, it's you know, you, you and to be in those leagues, you have to have expensive equipment. You have to find ice time. You probably need you probably need both parents in the household. Uh, to split, you know, split the time up that it takes to take you from point A to point B for all your hockey games, um, and then you know, but you know, if you again, if you were to do more of the recreational roller hockey kind of deal, you'd still would need to find pe- other people that are doing it, and you still need fairly expensive equipment to participate. If you grew up in Canada, if you have some skates and a stick, pretty much by November, there's going to be a lot of frozen ponds that you can go play on, play your friends on, and whatever. So there's a better there's a better chance of you of you doing grassroots hockey in Canada versus the United States, um, which is you know another again it, it, think about it this way um, to simplify this there's a reason why basketball is so popular in the inner city um, because the the cost of playing it is the cost of getting a ball and finding a couple of hoops somewhere and that is very very cheap. Um, same with baseball, maybe not in the United States, but baseball abroad. Like if you go into the Dominican, you know, the Caribbean, South America, uh, Mexico, what do you need? Really? You need a ball. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a baseball. Uh, you need a, you need a bat that doesn't necessarily have to be a bat. It could be a stick or something. And you need something that functions as a glove. And then you just need space. Uh, you, you know, you need a lot of space to play. That's it. That's the, that's the cost of playing. Um, that's why you hear like stories about like some of these kids, the Dominican or Venezuela or wherever they're from playing with like literally rocks, sticks and like, uh, you know, some pieces of fabric for a glove. Um, same with the soccer ball. Like why there's so many good soccer players from all over the world, because the cost is the cost, uh, is pretty negligible. Um, you don't even need a real ball to play soccer. So, but if you want to play hockey, um, at a high level, especially here in the United States, it is very, very expensive and you have to have it's very expensive. You have to have like the right equipment, the right place. And if you do kind of want to make it more, if it is more of a hobby, uh, you have to be like just in the right place. Like you have to be in the Northeast. You have to be in the, the upper Midwest for, for stuff like pond hockey to, to be, to really happen uh, for you ca- you know, play hockey casually, even here in Ohio. Like right now it's like, I don't know, it's like in the forties probably. Um, we've only had a few days this year where it's been cold enough to even, even if you were to be able to find a pond, um, or something like along those lines. It's only been cold enough a couple of days for that. So the grassroots participation of hockey just isn't there, which creates a much tighter, tighter knit group of people who have participated in it and people who are interested in it. So I don't think it's, I don't think there's any like, I'm, I'm again, there's toxic fan bases and toxic people involved in every sport. But I think the hockey, the idea of being a hockey fan is definitely a little bit more tribal where it does feel like you are uh, you know you're part of a very much more unique group that you might protect a little bit you know you know, maybe you're not as um i don't want to say welcoming to new people but like it's you know it's 
it is sort of a, a it is sort of like the in group essentially doesn't have as many people trying to get into it as frequently. And as far as okay, as far as soccer goes, this is the one that would that it, I'm going to talk about international soccer because I don't think American soccer is even on this level whatsoever. But this shit can obviously get borderline hostile. The teams in international soccer, be it in England, in Mexico, in Spain, Italy, it doesn't matter where. The teams mean so much more locally than the way our sports are set up. Um, you know, obviously the Cleveland Browns have been in Cleveland for a long time, and they're very much a, um, you know, it's, it's very much has a very tight community of fans. But it's just not the same way as some of these soccer teams that have been functioning in their very small, in a lot of cases, very small towns um, for 150, 160, 180 years. Um, you know, some of these clubs have been have been established, and there is more of a there is definitely more of a town identity um, that is intertwined with the teams. And this kind of leads to, this definitely leads to this like soccer hooliganism, right? And some of these soccer riots and these fights in the stands at soccer games because of the, the identity, uh, the identity of the team of the teams being very, very closely rooted with the identity of the people that, um, that are fans of it, which is something really like the inverse of this, as I mentioned, is sort of basketball now where, where people are fans of players, not necessarily fans of teams, this is sort of the exact opposite of it, where where the the town people are fans of the team because it is much more representative of them than an NBA team is of their um, of their particular fan base. So yeah, this sort of that's why you get these soccer riots. That's why if you were to go catch a match down in uh, Mexico City at Estadio Azteca, there is a defense moat around the field. It's four feet deep, eight feet wide, has fencing on the on the top part of it um, with barbed wire um, to keep like these insane fanatics off the field from harming the players. So yeah, like it's international soccer is the one that has the the toxic fan bases. Um, and again, it's not like it's just a constant thing, but you will uh, you can you can go ahead and, and just like YouTube some clips of. Of uh, like a, you know teams coming into uh, coming into Mexico City, be it to play the national team or you know or other, or you know could be some just some other teams from the Mexican leagues playing in the stadium, and they are throwing lit flares in the field, bottles of piss at each other. I mean it is it is just insane. It's just something that while there are many many passionate fans of football and college football here in the United States, it just isn't like that. Um, you you'll never see that at a baseball game. Rarely see that at a basketball game unless one of the players tries to go in the stands and fight people, um, or you would never see that in a hockey in a hockey game unless also the players went in the stands try to fight people. Um, so it's it, soccer international soccer is definitely at the far end of this in a very very different way. All right, that does it uh, for the final episode of the Gatekeepers. Uh, this was getting everyone into sports. Uh, this is a pretty interesting month and a pretty interesting sort of adjustment getting used to uh, podcasting uh, a solo again. I did it for a while there, um, but it's been a while since I've uh, I realized how many how many goddamn vocal pauses I do, how often I have to stop and uh, stitch everything together, which is uh, helps in some cases, hurts in other cases. Uh, but this has definitely been a lot of fun. I, I hope I hope if nothing else, this little series to kick the year off is kind of. Uh, open your eyes to some new things, whether you want to try something new, get into something new, or at the very least, how you think about things. You know, like it's 
maybe you're not you're not ready to go whole hog into uh, into hockey, but like just know that there are um, you know. But now you maybe you know a few things about it that make it seem a little bit easier to get into. Maybe maybe the the whole conversation around artificial intelligence isn't quite as daunting, knowing that there are some fun little programs that you can dick around with, and like so you get like a firsthand experience of exactly what um, commercial consumer level artificial intelligence is doing for you um so and certainly um you know certainly the big one for me at least was like maybe maybe it gives you a different way to look at the gym as opposed to this place that's feels like a it feels like a hostile territory it really isn't you know maybe you're looking at it a different way now and that's like the whole purpose of this series just to sort of get you to look at stuff in a different way and hopefully i've helped you helped you do that uh, that's it. We will see you next month when we get into uh, we get into February, and we're calling it. I'm calling it uh, "Ask the Experts." Uh, it'll be some interviews with people that have um, some insight into particular areas of expertise. So that should be a lot of fun. So thanks for downloading, listening, and we will catch you on the flip side later. <laughs>